What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Professional Athlete Podcast. For those who don't know, I am your host, Ken Gunter, and uh, could not be more excited about the show that we had today. We were joined by sleep expert, Dr. Wendy Troxel, and we had a really, really interesting conversation. So she is a senior behavioral and social scientist at the Rand Corporation. She's also an adjunct professor of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, and she specializes in behavioral treatments for insomnia and other sleep disorders. Her research focuses primarily on the interface between sleep and the social environment and health, and as a result, that actually ends up having a lot of implications on public policy. So she's considered a leading authority on how sleep affects and is affected by close relationships. So if you're a snuggler out there, be sure to listen up. This one's important. Dr. Wendy has been featured on CBS Sunday Morning, Good Morning America, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, MSNBC, CNN. She's been in numerous documentaries for National Geographic, and she's done a couple TEDx talks, the first of which is really interesting, and we're going to touch on that today. It's about adolescent sleep and the impact of school start times. And her most recent presentation was on the relationship between couples and sleep. Whew, that's legit, folks. So I wouldn't blame you if at home you're wondering, hey, Ken, your show's pretty new. Still kind of small potatoes. How did you get Dr. Wendy Troxel to come in studio and have this conversation with you? Well, first and foremost, uh, she was very kind and gracious with her time. So super appreciative for her to sit down with us. But what was really wonderful is she's actually out visiting because she was at our local school district trying to educate our town on uh, the impact that school start times actually has on adolescent sleep and the resulting consequences it can have for our teens. So huge implications in terms of what it'll do to their physical and mental development and uh, their resulting mental well-being. So really, really important work being done. And we're grateful that she's getting out in the field and doing it. And uh, to just give you a little bit of an idea where my head is at, you know, one of the things that's really important to me as we kind of build out this podcast is focusing not just on training, not just the mental aspects, but uh, talking about recovery. I think that is probably the most neglected uh, part of any training routine. And, you know, what we're finding through research is it actually very well is probably, you know, the most important thing that we could be doing. Um, so whether you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in the athletic aspects or you're just interested to learn from experts about how you can perform better in all areas of your life, I really think this conversation is important. We could have talked to her for hours, but uh, there's a lot, a lot of really great information in here. And I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. So on that note... If you're also enjoying the show, please do leave us a rating and a review. Can't thank all those folks who've reached out and given us feedback enough. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, I do try and guide the show in terms of uh, what I'm hearing is of interest. So please leave a review. Anything less than five stars and safe to say my kids might not go to college. So do it for the kids, people. On that note, uh, again, we have a fantastic show, so please welcome Dr. Wendy Troxel. Here we go. I gotta get up. I got too much to do. Yeah, I gotta get going. I gotta talk to you. It's 
so thank you for coming out. My pleasure. It's I fun. I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. Like I was saying, um, sleep has just been such a huge point of emphasis lately. Mm -hmm. Um, not only because we just had a baby and like, we're not getting much of it, but just like I was saying in general, before we started, it's like, I, I kind of identified that that seemed to be like possibly the biggest link or the biggest weak link in my own life in terms of like where I was sacrificing energy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of, um, not to like spill my guts here in the first 30 seconds. I'm a clinical psychologist. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Lay down on a couch if you'd like. <laughs> no, but you know, I, I kind of, uh, and, and you talk about this in, in your most recent TED talk that I was just watching, where there's this culture where we kind of um, hold up people who sacrifice sleep, mm -hmm. right? It kind of becomes like this badge of honor to sleep less, work more. Yeah. And um, while well-intentioned, I was definitely buying into that. <laughs> like I just started like falling apart at the seams. Right. You yeah. know? And so I was like, okay, something's out of balance here. Um, and so one of the areas that I've really tried to pay attention to and I'm trying to learn more about, which is why I'm so excited to talk to you is, um, you know, how can, how, the, what is the role sleep's actually pay, playing in my life? And then like, why is it so important? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think people who, um, you know, try to optimize their health mm. um, and productivity in lots of different ways, there's a lot of things that we can control and, you know, we can sort of, you know, increase our athletic training and the quality of our training. Right. We can really focus on um, our diet and what we're putting in our bodies, yeah. all these things. We can do meditation. And yet sleep is this one thing that we... Well, I mean, we can control some of the behaviors around sleep, but but what's most important, like I think because it's like a less active state right. and yet it occupies about a third of our lives, even like for people who are sort of obsessively inclined yeah. towards health behaviors, <laughs> sleep is the thing that gets the crunch because it's like we can't like do something about it other than allowing ourselves the opportunity for it. And that's often exactly what we don't do is we sacrifice the oppor opportunity for it. Um, in lieu of the other activities that we're doing. Yeah. It's like when a day becomes busy and you're trying to squeeze everything in, that feels like the, the space that you can start to like squeeze out. Exactly. Like, it, it's like the dead space or exactly. that's how we think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and so why, why is that? Like, you know, I, I think people are becoming more aware, hopefully generally as to the importance of sleep. Um, but like when I talk to friends and family, I feel like there's still a huge gap in understanding like just what is the role that sleep plays kind of like within our own physiology, you know, yeah. like, I, I guess like, what is the purpose of sleep? Yeah. Well, I mean, as a colleague of mine says, I mean, to ask the question, what's the purpose of sleep? It's like the equivalent of asking like, what's the purpose of being awake? Yeah. You know, how can you distill mm. something that takes literally one third of our lives right. that actually is involved in every aspect of our physiology from our immune system to our brain function, to yeah. our hormones, uh, everything you can imagine to our mental health, um, uh, how we think, how we behave, how we feel. Right. It affects so much. So how can you distill it down? To distill it down would be sort of to miss so much. Hmm. And yet, you know, I think we just come from this culture that, you know, sleep science is a relatively young science. It's been around, you know, 60 or so years. Hmm. Um, and culturally, I think we still have a lot of our, you know, puritanical views of, you know, up at dawn and, right. um, you know, work hard and, um, you know, that this, you know, sleep is for the week. So it takes a long time for the messages about the sort of pervasive impacts of sleep to sort of 
to, to really sort of trickle down and uh, sort of get into, um, you know, our cultural awareness and then yeah. actually start changing behavior. So that, that's actually an interesting point. So let me ask you this. So it's a relatively new field, which I, I guess in itself, understanding how important it is, right, is a bit shocking. So how did you actually um, get into the field of sleep research? So I'm a clinical health psychologist by training, and okay. I've always been interested in um, how and why relationships, um, how we're connected with others, how that might matter for our physical health. Yeah. And so a lot of my early work was focused um, on um, marriages or marital-like relationships and um why is it that married people and particularly happily married people live longer, happier and healthier lives than their unmarried or unhappily married counterparts? Yeah. And there's lots of uh, sort of uh, possible pathways that could explain that. And, you know, some have more um, evidence for them than others. So things like, mm. you know, when you have a partner, uh, you're more likely to, you know, eat better, exercise. You know, a partner is uh, a powerful source of um, social control, meaning, okay. you know, helping you to do the good things yep, um, for your health. You know, <laughs> uh, in other words, something nagging sometimes, but, you know, encouraging the healthy behaviors, discouraging, you know, staying up till one and drinking and smoking and all those things. Right, right, right. So there's a lot of obvious candidates for why relationships would be health protective. But one pathway that no one at the time, and this was um, about 15 or 16 years ago when I started to do this work, um, no one was looking at sleep. Hmm. And sleep was rapidly emerging as we were getting more and more uh, research from large-scale studies showing that sleep was critically important for your heart disease risk, for your longevity, for your mental right. health, kind of you name it. Um, so we were definitely becoming aware that sleep was this critical health behavior and it happened to be the one health behavior that couples do together. Hmm. And so to me, it just seemed like this obvious candidate um, right. to link the two and try to understand the role of sleep in actually explaining the health effects of our relationships. Yeah. Um, so that's how I get into it. So, uh, you know, one, I I'm excited to hear your perspective on this. How do you go about researching the impact relationship has on sleep, right? Because traditionally, like when I think of how someone, um, you know, gets their sleep patterns tested, right? It's like I envision this like white sterilized room hooked up to a bunch of wires. Um, how do you begin to research the impact that sleeping with another partner or another person has on an individual? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, most sleep research does involve, you know, bringing individuals into a laboratory yeah. under tightly controlled conditions, you know, and again, like the, the idea is to make them as isolated as possible. Mm. Um, and yet that's just simply not what our sleep in the, you know, in the wild looks like. Sleep right. in the real world, and most of us do sleep with a partner, about 66% of adults report regularly sleeping with a partner, you know, sleep in the real world is this shared phenomenon. So we're missing a big part of the picture yeah. by not looking at the partner. So how do I do it? Well, um, we use a number of different methods in my, uh, in my research, but mostly um, I use equipment that can be used in the home oh, okay. because... I want the naturalistic environment. I don't right. want those sterile walls. I want the uh, you know actual sight, sounds, the feel of the, yeah. the, the bedroom, the couple's bedroom, if that's uh, the context I'm studying. So we can either use actigraphy, which is a wrist-worn device, kind of like a Fitbit or something like okay. that. But we use research-grade um, uh, actographs that measure motion at night, mm, okay. um, uh, which is a good in behavioral indicator of sleep. 
um, because, you know, when you're uh, relatively quiescent, that's an indicator of, of sleep, along okay. with sleep diaries to indicate that you're actually, um, you know, that that's your sleep window, not just a rest Got interval. It. So we use behavioral uh, indicators of sleep, and we have both partners wearing wrist act giraffes. Um, and then we also, I've uh, done a study in military couples where we actually um, had our laboratory techs attend the home and um, suit up our participants, um, one of whom was a service member uh, and their spouse um, with um, polysomnography. So that's like the same technology that we would use in the lab um, with, you know, electrodes on the brain, on the head, um, sensors for both muscle activity and eye eye movement. So we could get the full um, picture of sleep architecture as well as sleep timing and continuity and all those things. And we do it simultaneously. Yeah, that's interesting because... It's such probably a drastic shift. Although I guess someone who's in the military isn't necessarily going into an environment where they're sleeping alone, nor is it probably <laughs> as relaxing as it is at home. But exactly, I imagine um, you you probably would see some pretty stark differences. Is that is that correct? Is that in line with what you found? Differences in terms of what their experience is in sleeping in the in deployment versus at home. Yeah, and and as well as just like sleeping in their own bed versus sleeping in like a shared bed, right? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, well, military sleep is is one of the topics that I study, and it's very mm. interesting. And um, certainly under deployed conditions, um, you know, the sleep environment is hostile in a number of yeah, ways. Yeah. Um, Actually, even under deployed conditions, sleep tends to be shared because, you know, you're sleeping with right. uh, fellow uh, service members. Yeah. Um, but there's also often a very hostile environment um, <laughs> in terms of, you know, the threats that are around you. Um, and one of the reasons why, and, and there's also lots of interference with your sleep, you know, uh, getting called in the middle of the night or your colleague is being called or you yeah. know, sounds from the environment. There's a lot of interference with sleep um, in a deployed environment. What really interested me is, well, what happens when service members come home? Mm. And because as human beings, when we're trained to be vigilant and service members as well as police officers and firefighters and other populations, you know, that's their job is to be trained to be vigilant day and night. And that was really interesting to me and important to study because we can't just turn Turn that that off. off. And a variety of ways, we all kind of at times in our life might be sort of trained to be vigilant day and night. Like when you're having young children, yes. it's why many women will say that they never sleep as well after they, you know, even once their children start sleeping through the night, they don't sleep well anymore because you've become trained to be vigilant. So in any case, in the service member population, after deployment, um, one of the things I've been studying is, again, how do service members make that transition back home? Oh. And, you know, after being trained to be vigilant day and night and being exposed to a lot of stuff, uh, which can make sleep even harder, well, A, how do they sleep, but also how does their partner sleep? Because yeah. as you know, partners, you know, um, there's interdependence. Sure. Um, and you know, the, the spouse of a service member um, also has a lot of transition to make, both when their partner is gone on deployment and when they return, and then how do couples sort of adapt and renegotiate mm. the night. And, you know, we found some, you know, really 
amazing and interesting um, things and amazing stories. I mean, the truth of the matter is spouses of service members also um, showed a lot of sleep disturbance. Hmm. And there was also some interesting kind of synchrony uh, between the patterns of service members, of course, if uh, and, and his or her partner. So if he's waking up a lot in the night, if he's having nightmares, for instance, you know, her sleep is also affected. Right. So again, it's just another example that if we're going to understand these issues around sleep and populations that are at risk for sleep disturbance. Yeah. Sleep does not occur in a vacuum. It happens for many people in the context of a couple. So we have to have both parties involved. Right. Now that makes sense. So with regards to, you know, thinking about service members, policemen, firefighters, and then, you know, while, while to a much, much lesser degree, right? Those of us who work in the corporate world and tend to be like overly high, strung and stressed, um, you know, ha- have you found through your research any effective means for helping people maybe start to like shut some of that fight or flight uh, off? Yeah. So in general, kind of how I think about sleep from like mm. a theoretical perspective and what we need to sleep is, I mean, first it's important just to step back and realize that sleep from an evolutionary standpoint yeah. is an unsafe behavior, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, you're lying down, you know, eyes closed, semi-conscious. That's like, you're really vulnerable to potential threats oh, yeah. for the, from the environment. Same with you, tigers. Right, all these exactly. things. And so, and so our brains are hardwired to respond that way. And yet we know that sleep is absolutely critical for our survival. Hmm. So somehow it has sort of um, lasted. And so how does our brain learn to feel safe and secure enough to fall into this vulnerable state? And so, yeah, so for lots of reasons, you know, yeah. that, that sense of vigilance or, or anxiety, how do you, you know, sort of turn that down so that you can fall into good sleep? Mm-hmm. There are a number of strategies um, that we found and that I've, others have found and that I encourage in my clinical practice. Basically, one first step is that the brain needs to feel sort of like predictable environments okay. or generally um, sort of give the brain the cue that safety is here. It's why, right. you know, for, if you have ch- young children, we t- try to follow these very routinized schedule yeah. because that helps those little brains um, sort of know, okay, w- when you know what's coming next, right. then you feel safer. You don't have to feel as anxious about mm. it. Same thing applies for adults. We're still creatures of habit. Yeah. So having some predictable routines in terms of your bedtimes and wake up times. Yeah. Also having some sort of ritual or wind down routine prior to bedtime mm-hmm. can start like sort of setting the stage for the brain that, okay, the world is safe and secure. You can enter this potentially vulnerable state. Right. You don't have to, you know, stay vigilant and alert. Um, So what can you do? This does not have to be any sort of elaborate process. I think that's, you know, people sort of, when they hear like, oh, you should have a bedtime routine, whether it be for themselves or for their children, they imagine this like extensive, you know, (laughs) you know, drawn out act. And it really does not, nor should it be that way. You know, anywhere from, you know, half an hour to an hour is fine. What you can get in so that you're not just racing off to bed. Okay. Um, Something, you know, the idea here is really that it's routine and it's relaxing. So you try yeah. to do about the same thing every night. So whether that be taking a bath or taking a shower and then reading a book, brushing your teeth and going to bed um, right. or with children, it's sort of like you want it to be a one-way street. Yes. So instead of what, Very many, much so. <laughs> what many parents will do is like they'll start, they'll do bath and then the child will ask like, oh, can I go have a snack? And so then you'll run back downstairs or whatever it is. Oh, can I, you know, just do a little bit more uh, coloring or playing? And then right. you'll go there and then it's back to the bedroom and then there's, you know, maybe one more bathroom trip. So it's just like back and forth. Whereas like what you really want is this like very clear step by step Mm. with 
that's unidirectional, yeah. one way to the bed. So it's, you right. know, you know, brush teeth, bath, yep. to the bedroom where you read a story or two and you have a limit on the number of stories and then it's to bed. You just described what we've been doing for the last six months. And I will say that it actually, it's, it's made a huge difference. Well, bravo. <laughs> so like what I was telling you before we started is when we lived in New York, it was, there was no method to the madness. It was just completely sporadic. Um, you know, it, it depended on what time I got home from work what we had planned. Cause when we had our kids, let me think I was 27. My wife must've been 24. She's going to kill me for not knowing that off the top of my head. <laughs> but you know, in, in New York terms, like we were actually pretty yeah, young, you're babies. <laughs> right? So like to maintain any sort of social life, like we still had to kind of be out and about. And so that meant that like our daughter came with us, um, you know, and she slept terribly right? Like there was a lot of other things that I'm sure that we were doing wrong, but you know, like what we didn't have was that consistent routine and habit. Um, and moving out here, that's something that we have like now made almost an unwavering priority. You know what I mean? Like we plan our, we've become those parents (laughs) that plan their evening around the kid's bedtime. Um, but it's made such a huge difference. Like my son now, will I mean, he'll sleep through the night and there's, Mm -hmm. there's no arguing. Yeah. It's just like he knows once we're in that routine, this is what comes next. And when I set him down, I mean, it's, you know, there's still nights where he might like put up a little bit of a fight sure. or get upset, but more often than not, falls right to sleep. Yeah. So it's, it's that same idea of safety and security. Children, yeah. just like adults, will resist bedtime right. if there's any cues in the environment that of uncertainty or what's coming next. Yeah. So by having that ritualized sort of routine mm-hmm. of it's going to be this and then this and then bed. Yeah. Even if, you know, frankly, many children would prefer to sleep with their parents or would prefer just to stay up with their parents as long as they know that, you know, that what's coming next is actually safe and it's right. an okay thing to do. And I've done it before. Um, that creates that feeling of safety, which allows them to sort of downregulate um, and uh, fall asleep. Yeah. I read an in- a really interesting book called um, The Power of Habit. I can't remember who wrote it. Are you oh, familiar I with I, I it? I think I have read that too. Yeah. Yeah. It was I'm it, forgetting the author. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I know I am too. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, link to the notes. Um, but it's, it's all about just like the role that cues play and then just like how ingrained that becomes and just like how even in areas where we might not realize it, habit is just so ingrained in the way that we operate day to day. Um, and so when I started thinking about that in the context of like our nighttime routine, I mean, that's what in part drove a lot of the change around the way we dealt with our kids. And I don't know if I necessarily thought that that should apply to myself as an adult as well. So it's really interesting to hear that, you know, almost from like a biological evolutionary standpoint, there's a literal need to be able to kind of like understand that you're in a safe environment just because we did, we're not always, you know, well protected in suburban homes. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, so, so, so that's really interesting. So, you know, how do you like measure what would be a good night of sleep? Or I guess, you know, either qualitatively or quantitatively, how do you, how do you quantify like what a good night of sleep looks like for someone? So it really depends on the context in which I'm asking it. Okay. Um, if I'm doing it in a research study, I yeah. might have a, you know, many different metrics, including objective measures, whether it be sort of a behavioral assessment using, um, you know, actor graphs to hmm. see how continuous or discontinuous the sleep was. Yeah. You know, maybe I'll be measuring something like sleep duration, also very important. Right. But, you know, or I might do something even more in depth, like, um, you know, measuring brain activity during sleep, which could tell me something about the depth of sleep. Yeah. Um, 
But what's also critically important is simply asking people, hmm. you know, how well did you sleep last night? Yeah. Do you feel refreshed in the morning? Um, how would you rate your sleep quality? Yeah. And so both in my research life as well as in my clinical world, I mean, clinically, that's where the action lies because yeah. I mostly treat people with insomnia. And the truth okay. of the matter is that insomnia is... Um, a, a disorder characterized the, by the perception um, that may or may not be mirrored in objective measures um, of poor quality, non-refreshing sleep. So there's frankly no objective measure that's more important to me than yeah. their report that I sleep miserably. Right. I, I, you know, worry about my sleep. I am not. I don't wake up feeling refreshed. So that's what I need clinically. Um, mostly to go on yeah. um, is to try to improve that experience of sleep and, and how you're feeling during your, during your day. Yeah, that makes sense. And so something that I've always thought was interesting too is, you know, say someone has always slept poorly. Like let's say someone has sleep apnea, mm -hmm. right? And, and weren't necessarily aware that they had it. That's just what sleep had always been to them. Do you find that there's um, often a difference between what someone perceived as the quality of their sleep versus what you're kind of like objectively measuring? Absolutely. And I see it in both directions. So sometimes people, um, for instance, with apnea, which is a disorder where you, um, with or without your knowledge, you're actually waking up many times during the night because right. um, you're not breathing well. Yeah. <laughs> Slight problem. Yeah. Um, so that sends a strong signal to the brain. It's time to wake <laughs> up. Uh, and uh, But it's, it's due to the collapsing of the upper airway during sleep. Um, so they may not actually experience that, I mean, that their sleep is poor, but they yeah. probably are feeling a lot of sleep during the day, right. but they may not know why. Some people with apnea actually end up thinking that they're depressed or get diagnosed with depression right. because they just feel sleepy and lethargic, but don't really tie it to their sleep in any way. Yeah. And yet then we measure their sleep um, and we see that in fact, they're not breathing throughout the night and they have all these awakenings that they might not even be aware of, yeah. which is causing this uh, really fragmented sleep. But also we see the flip side sometimes with people with insomnia um, that, uh, you know, if you ask them, you know, about their sleep, they'll uh, tell you that they, you know, uh, either have great difficulty falling asleep and great difficulty staying asleep or just the, the quality of their sleep is really poor. Yeah. And they might say, oh, you know, I, I, I probably don't, you know, get more than four hours of sleep per night. Hmm. If you measure them in the laboratory, um, kind of with our current sleep assessments, it has been found often that they don't show the same level of objective sleep disturbance that they describe. Oh, okay. And yet, you know, and so that kind of some, sometimes suggests, oh, well, these people are just complainers, right. uh, which is absolutely not the truth. <laughs> it's not the case. Uh, no, it's just that our objective measures measure something different from our subjective experience of sleep. Mm. And we actually may not be tuned in quite enough yet um, to effectively measure what's going wrong um, w with sleep. Because for instance, what my patients will tell me often is, you know, I honestly, I might've been asleep, I might not. It's kind of hmm. like that experience of a light that's like at half mast, you know, yep. sort of flickering. And that's often the experience of insomnia where, you know, I could be asleep or I might not be asleep, but I know that at any moment during the night, anything could wake me up. Right. And so it's that very shallow, um, easily disrupted sleep that, is not at all restorative yeah. um, and that is so debilitating for people with insomnia. So it might just be that we're not measuring it objectively well enough yet. Okay. Um, and it's also true that in many cases, how we feel about a certain experience 
doesn't necessarily map on to ob- our objective measures. Yeah. I, I've noticed, so um, like we were talking about before, you know, I, I, for me to get to my desk, it, it, can, it takes two hours in the morning, right? Okay. So on those days, um, you know, I'm up at five, maybe 5.30 if I'm going to catch a later train so that I can, you know, get up, I can work out and I can, you know, kind of get, get myself on my way. Um, I find that like emotionally, the, the emotion that comes with like the stress of like knowing that I have to be up at five, yeah, that alone will like wake me up in the middle of the night. Or if I wake up at say like two and I glance at the clock, I'm like, oh no, like I only have three more hours left. And then like that kind of like surge of, I don't know what it, it I get, maybe it is adrenaline, fear. Yeah, adrenaline. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and then th- that's what causes me not to be able to go back to sleep. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of folks in my area who make that brutal terrible commute who, and we all kind of like commiserate about that. Yeah. Right. So. Well, it's like anybody, when you have an early morning flight and you have to be up at 4am, you know, and you set your alarm for that, but you're actually up at 2am, yes. you know, so, you know, right. it's, it's that anticipatory, you know, anxiety. Yeah, that, it's anxiety. You know, and, and that's often, you know, again, that is very much what I see in my insomnia patients is that sort of the inability to actually shut the brain down mm. that you're so, so predicting what's coming next. Cause you're um, already probably so frustrated that you felt like you haven't been sleeping yes. that it's like, yeah. Yeah. I so totally it, it, and now that. the pressure's on, you know, and if you have to wake right. up at 5 AM to get out the door, you want to, you know, you're already calculating the hours of sleep exactly. that you possibly can get. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, you see it's two o'clock, you're starting to do that mental math of how much do I have left? How quickly can I fall back to yep. sleep? And again, if you go back to that, safety and security perspective that I'm talking about earlier, mm. um, you know, all of the, that stress, that worry, that mental calculation, yeah. um, that's all a fear response, you know, okay. the, or, you know, from a physiological perspective, it sends, you know, it's sending all the same signals. Yeah. yeah. So that's not telling the brain that the world is safe and secure. So it's making it actually more difficult for you to sleep. Hmm. Do you have any suggestions um, as to, now this is me just selfishly mm-hmm. asking, this is no, no longer concerned about the people listening along. Okay. <laughs> so let, let, let's say, you know, like on those days and I have a, a little bit of a wonky schedule because like maybe three days a week, I'll go into New York. The other two, I work from home. Right. Okay. So I try to keep to a pretty, um, you know, a regular schedule as to like when I wake up and when I go to bed so that like I can kind of like get myself in a pattern to where on those mornings where I do have to wake up early, there's not as much anxiety. Sure. Um, but in all actuality, that, that, that still ends up often coming around just the same. Like, do you have any recommendations to people that, that face that kind of anxiety? Because what I find when I talk to folks is that's actually pretty common. The, the anxiety about like, yeah, like, oh, I got to be sleep. up at five yeah. and oh, I just woke up. It's one. And then that ends up causing you to be up for the next two to three hours. And then, you know, sure. you just feel like you're caught in this like terrible cycle of poor sleep after poor sleep. Sure. So, I mean, there's a couple strategies if you're waking up in the middle of the night and if, also if you're starting to feel anxiety around sleep. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is, again, like with children, you know, trying to keep your bedtimes and wake up times, even if you have sort of the luxury of uh, a somewhat flexible schedule yeah. wherein, you know, some days that you have to go in even earlier. Right. I mean, to be honest with you, it'd probably be better for your system to try to have a more consistent schedule throughout the week and mm. keep your your bedtimes probably earlier than you want them to be to yeah. allow for those earliest morning wake up so that you have um, more consistency. Yeah. The second thing is if you wake up in the middle of the night, the first thing that everybody wants to do is look at the clock. 
And that was like the death knell. Just do right. not look at the clock. There's nothing that it's going to tell you in the middle of the night that is going to make you happy or peaceful or more likely to fall back to sleep. Yeah, exactly. You know? There's no good information no, coming your way. No, just, you know, <laughs> it's the middle of the night. That's all you need to know. Leave it there. Yep. And like, so, you know. If you uh, actually have, you know, an actual clock in the in the room, which, you know, unfortunately few people do anymore and mm-hmm. said they just have their phones, yeah. which I would say bring back the, you know, alarm clocks because that's their only function and they right. need a job and they're good at it. Yeah. Um, but have an alarm clock in the room um, in case you need an alarm for the morning, but turn it around so you don't have to see the numbers okay. um, on, on the screen. Um, and certainly don't look at your phone in the middle of the night. Um, and instead, if you wake up in the middle of the night, which, by the way, is perfectly normal. Mm. So... Sleep is not a coma. Right. <laughs> you know, I think we also have this uh, unrealistic idea that like, when we fall asleep, we need to be like, you know, knocked out. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that. So I'm, no. I'm interested in this. Sleep is a dynamic state where, yeah. you know, we go through about, you know, five cycles um, throughout the night, about 90 minute cycles where okay. we're tr- transitioning through different stages of sleep. Yep. And through those transitions, it's also very normal to have um, awakenings, mm-hmm. which can be brief. They can even be outside of your awareness. Okay. Um, that's when, you know, that's what mostly happens. And that's a totally healthful, healthy thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. As long as it's not happening, you know, very frequently and, okay. and, or if the awakenings are extended. Yeah. So the problem is if you wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason, and then you can't fall back to sleep. So then what do you do mm-hmm. um, to avoid that anxiety that creeps in? Sure. So the first thing is don't look at the clock to find out, you know, that you're screwed or that you're, you know, that you're going to be more upset by it. Yeah. Um, if you find that you wake up and you kind of roll over once, you roll over twice, um, you're sort of lying there and you feel that like sleep isn't coming. If you think about a half an hour has passed and yeah. that's your internal judgment, that's not looking at the clock. More subjective More, than- Totally subjective. Yeah. It, you do not need- We to, all kind of know that you feeling know of like- when your brain is like, oh, I'm awake. Yep. If you're awake, get out of bed. Okay. Go get out of bed. Do something relaxing hmm. um, in low light conditions, like reading a book or right. you know listening to a podcast. There perhaps. we go. Um, Turn on you know, a professional athlete podcast. Uh, can't sleep. Yeah, a really boring one. Yeah, <laughs> we'll put you right back to sleep. Um, and until you get sleepy, but the, and, you know, and you, and sometimes you know there might be some nights that you're just like really keyed up, and you might have a um, you know really big thing to do at work the next day, or if you're an athlete, you might have right. um, some you know major event happening the next day. Yep. You know what? The most important thing is to distract your mind at that point from the fact that you're not sleeping, okay. because that focus on I'm not sleeping is so you know, stress producing and anxiety provoking that it's, you know, flooding your body with stress hormones, Hmm. which is not going to facilitate sleep. Right. So the thing to do- It's going to exacerbate the problem. It's just going to exacerbate the problem. So if you could distract yourself, you might actually find that you get sleepy again, at which Hmm. point then without sort of effortfully trying to sleep, you'll fall back to sleep. And you'll also just reduce that likelihood of a habit forming of being anxious and awake in bed, which is what so many people do. Yeah. And I think that's the most frustrating thing is that feeling of like trying to sleep. Yeah. Like trying to force yourself to relax. It's, it's almost an impossible task. It is an impossible task because again, your brain is going to fight against that. If, if your brain thinks like you're effortfully striving for something (laughs) that could be unsafe, like it's going to like put all the stops in. And that's why actually an insomnia treatment, you know, 
it's really a, about sort of turning it on, turning the problem on its head. Mm. People who have insomnia are effortfully trying to sleep. And actually what the most, you know, the strongest treatment, which is behavioral treatment yeah. um, for insomnia, actually stronger than any, any pill, actually sort of flips that idea on its head. And instead of, you know, tr uh, effortfully trying to sleep, you know, I as their therapist, you know, effortfully make you stay awake hmm. <laughs> for okay. longer periods of time. And by doing that, that it paradoxically kind of flips the cycle and allows you to fall asleep because sleep is an involuntary process. You cannot force right. yourself to do it. And the more you chase it, the more it's going to elude you. So we actually work with extending wakefulness oh, and therefore you're able to sleep. So, and I, I think this could be because it's been such a point of interest for me in the last few years, but I feel like I'm having more and more conversations with people. I mean, clients, um, people who are like acquaintances as opposed to friends where like sleep just ends up coming up. Uh, and I talk to so many folks who just, I mean, really struggle with it. And I know, you know, we're, we're a culture where it's like everyone, and I, I don't think, you know, for nefarious purposes, no one's looking for the quick fix that they literally just want to be able to sleep. Yeah. So they turn to, you know, pills, um, you know, different forms of medication. Um, I know some people, you know, resort to just Benadryl, just anything to try and make them drowsy. Sure. But um, it sounds like from your perspective, an approach might be, and I imagine the under the super supervision of a, you know, uh, a clinician would be like the Ideal. recommended uh. approach. Um, but not trying to fall asleep, perhaps maybe even trying to sounds like stay awake until you naturally are forced to fall asleep is a better approach. A absolutely. And, and again, you know, when it comes to the clinical disorder of insomnia, mm -hmm. the recommended treatment is a behavioral one, not a pill form, not any sort of uh, yeah. pharmacologic medication. And again, I agree, it's not necessarily nefarious, but it is part of our culture that there's right. a pill for everything. And it's also also the not case- Not nefarious on the person who just wants to sleep. Who wants to sleep because it's, you know, you feel desperate and it's a, you know, and you need your sleep. So it's an understandable thing to want treatment right, for right, it. Right. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, Many um, providers aren't even aware of the behavioral treatments that are supposed to be the front line. And, you know, in some areas, there's not access to a therapist. So there are some strategies that people can follow. Certainly, if you have, you know, a really significant sleep problem, you yeah. really should find um, a, a provider to help you uh, deal with the problem. But there are some strategies that are sort of based on the most evidence-based treatment, okay. which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which people can apply. And yeah, like you said, you know, one thing is to wait for your body to be physiologically mm. sleepy. So one of the things that some people, um, I mean, some people who are struggling with sleep will start going to bed sort of excessively early right? Um, because they're already calculating, well, if it's going to take me two hours to fall asleep, I better go right. to be in bed at 10 PM because I'm not going to fall asleep till midnight. And then when I ask them, you know, um, so when are you, are you, what, what says it's bedtime at 10 PM? Are you sleepy? No, it's just, it's, it's, it's just 10 PM, you know? And I said, well, right. you know, but you're not going to fall asleep for two hours. Well, no, but if I didn't, then, you know, there's the concern that like, but I'll be up two hours later. But, you know, the point is uh, you can't rush, you know, a physiological yeah. act. Again, it, it would be sort of like, you know, if you sat down to the table and wa waited to get hungry, you would never do that. Right. So you do have to wait to be physiologically sleepy. Um, and if you're not sleeping, you shouldn't be in bed. Yeah. Um, and I so feel like that too. And you, you can tell me if I'm, if I'm correct in thinking this, but that probably just only like reinforces that like kind of anxious yes. relationship with sleep. Yes. So you the know, bed you're, you're putting yourself in a no win situation by forcing yourself to try and sleep when your body's not ready. 
you're forcing yourself to, yeah, exactly. You're putting yourself in a no-win situation and one of mm. frustration. Right. Um, and then the bed starts to be equated with frustration and anxiety and stress instead of, you know, a pleasant experience of uh, relaxation, restfulness, and sleep. Yeah. Um, so it really sends the brain the wrong signal that, you know, sleep, that the bedroom is this place of, a, of like effortfully striving instead of falling into this, you know, deep yeah. natural sleep. Yeah. So something that you um, mentioned that I've personally, my wife and I both actually have started to pay more attention to is I used to be more concerned with, um, oh, I need eight hours a night or I need seven hours or, you know, whatever that amount of time frame was that I felt was like the you know appropriate Magic recommendation yeah. of the day. Yeah. And, and I've started to think more in terms of cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me start by saying I only have a very high level understanding of what a sleep cycle entails, but um, in thinking of everything in kind of like 90 minute increments, I I've been trying to at least allow myself a window of time that, you know, theoretically is going to let me get through a full cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, based on your research and, uh, you know, your kind of expertise, like, is that a good approach? Um, should people be thinking about, oh, you know, get X amount of hours or should people start more closely tracking like sleep cycles? Well, I mean, I think that the technology for, you know, commercial use and in-home use of measuring our sleep cycles is, you know, not perfect okay. by any means. So I wouldn't rest too heavily on that. Yeah. I think it's not bad to be sort of aware that the body sort of naturally, you know, ideally uh, goes through about four to five cycles per night, each okay. 90 minutes. And, and um, would you say four to five, it, when we start talking about like, you know, recommendations, that's like kind of that, whatever, what is that? Seven and a half hours? Yeah. Uh, that That's kind of what people should be striving for? Ideally. Okay. That said, there is no magic number, whether you Mm. look at sort of cycles and I mean, again, this is, is, I think, an imperfect science at home. Um, So I I, I don't think it's worth hanging too much um, of of your sort of emphasis on that. Although, you know, if it ends up getting you around seven to eight hours, well, interestingly enough, that sort of then also is in parallel with the general recommendation, though it's not true for everyone. You know, again, it's not a magic number, um, but I, you know, most people do function best, you know, somewhere in the, you know, seven to nine hour range. There's absolutely going to be individual differences. And again, whether you think about that from a cycle perspective or from a um, total sleep duration, Mm -hmm. But what I really don't want people to get so hung up on is this like pursuit of the magic number Yeah. um, because we also want to be paying attention to the quality of your sleep. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. I can get you, you know, eight hours of sleep by just putting you in bed for 12 hours a day Mm -hmm. and that will not feel like good quality sleep because you'll be in and out of it. You're not going to sleep for 12 hours. Um, but you know, you know, given, you know, a longer enough period of time, you could got, kind of go in and out of sleep and we could add it up, yeah. um, to be eight hours. That's not how we experience good quality sleep. It's also not how we experience the benefits of sleep, mm. um, in terms of our, you know, vitality during the day, our productivity and our mood. Right. Um, what we experience as good quality sleep is generally, um, deep sleep that is also consolidated and yeah. not broken up in chunks throughout the night. So sort of being mindful of how do you feel when you wake up? Yeah. Do you feel, you know, and not in the first 15 minutes, everybody feels pretty crummy, um, except the extreme morning people. <laughs> right. Um, after you kind of shake the cobwebs Damn off. Damn You know, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know, once, you know, once you've shaken the cobwebs off, once you start your day, um, like, do you feel refreshed? Do you feel like you had enough sleep? Um, are you, you know, 
needing to have, you know, three or more cups of coffee per day? Yeah. Are you thinking that you need a nap? Are you not able to get through the things that, uh, you, you know, you want to do, you need to do during the day? Those are indicators potentially that you're not getting enough sleep. Okay. Um, if you're able to function um, at your at a high level and you're getting, again, at least I think for most people, a minimum of six hours. I mean, okay. um, you know, there's a lot of people out there uh, that claim that they're definitely the exception. And I think right. I've met- Four hours a night. Oh yeah. And I've met every one of them. So, you know, and it's only 2% of the population that right. is a natural short sleeper. So, you know, nobody else is invited because I've already met all right, of them, right, I'm right. sure. <laughs> you know, they all tell me, but I'm the exception. So, you know, it's a small crowd that it, yeah. that is in that 2%. So most of us do need more sleep than we're allowing. Hmm. Um, but I think checking into multiple metrics and, you know, it's not just the duration. It's not just the number of cycles. It is how how you experience your sleep, and mm. and are you consistently achieving that? Because it's not good enough to get you know one good night of sleep followed right. by five bad ones. Yeah, uh, you know it's not a bank account where you can sort of like get one good night and like disperse it throughout yeah, the week. Yeah, yeah, no big no big deposit that you can then kind of like pull from. It's it's Correct. it's about consistency. It's about consistency. Yeah. Um, so it's funny you say that because I just had a really good conversation. Um, with my buddy Noah, who's a, a broadcaster. And we were talking about working out more broadly. And I was like, look, you know, there's, there's a lot of different workout plans. There's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. Like depending on what your goal is, there's probably multiple ways to get there. What's probably going to be more important is like, are you consistently yeah. doing those things over time versus like some silver bullet? Um, so it's, you know, just kind of the, the parallels across different disciplines, right? I think are, are, are pretty interesting. With regards to quality of sleep, this is something I've also been trying to think more about. You know, what, what do you, I guess, what do you define as quality of sleep? Is it, as you were saying, more like subjective? Like, do you feel well rested and able to operate at a high level? And I guess, is that, is that, I guess you've already answered that then. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that you see people often doing that are preventing getting a quality sleep? Sure. So, a number of things. And and sometimes we're not aware of some of the things that we may be doing that are yeah. interfering with the quality of sleep. So I think it's a good question. So things like, you know, uh, caffeine um, or excessive <laughs> as alcohol. I, as I look yeah, at I my know. giant <laughs> mug of coffee. Yeah. So even if, you know, some people say, you know, I'm not at all affected by caffeine or I'm right. not at all affected by alcohol. Um, and, you know, excessive amounts mm. and particularly later in the day of either yeah. can actually uh, definitely interfere with the quality of your sleep even if you don't sort of, you're not necessarily aware of it, but can actually lead to more awakenings. It I've can heard, change uh, the depth of sleep. I've heard with caffeine, there's like a, a half-life that occurs where it's like somewhere around like six hours, like try and, the, try and not have caffeine within six hours of when you're probably going to try to go to bed. That sounds about right. I mean, my general rule of thumb okay. is um, actually you know, usually, um, to try to cut things off at, at about, uh, you know, 2 PM. So that would be sort of, okay, we're, 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 we're a little beyond that, that would be around the eight hour for most adults, okay. If, okay. If, you know, bedtime is closer to 10 PM. But, um, um, you know, and, and again, with this, you can't be so rigid about times because everybody right. has individual differences. Yep. And so again, if you're having any problem sleeping or if you're having problems with, you know, daytime fatigue or something like that, then you want to kind of really clean up these acts and, yeah. you know, why do things that are going to potentially mess with the quality of your sleep? So yeah, caffeine earlier in the day is better. Okay. Um, you know, other things that can disrupt your sleep quality are things like pain. Mm. Um, so if you, you know, um, are having any sort of injury or, um, 
pain that absolutely will disrupt the quality of your sleep. Um, you know, frankly, any other you know medical conditions can, um, um, or other sleep disorders. So sleep yeah. apnea being one that sure. um, really can uh, disrupt the quality of your sleep, but you may not be aware sort of what the cause of it is. Right. Um, you know, other people that we share beds with can also disrupt the quality of your sleep, yes. as you know. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, because I know that, um, you know, in, in addition to, I suppose, sleep more broadly and your work with insomnia, right, your, your work on couples, I think is super interesting. Thank you. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit, and I, I would actually open it up to you because I'm, I'm so like ignorant in this category, um, despite the fact I sleep next to my wife every, wife every night, yeah. you know, like, like what is, how is sleep affected by our partners? Sure. Well, I mean, what the studies have that have actually looked at like couples sleeping together, and they're actually fairly few, because as I said earlier, most studies look at sleep as an individual behavior, right. despite the fact that most adults sleep together. Yeah. What they show is that sleep, you know, among, you know, bed sharing partners is highly interdependent. Mm. Um, and something like, you know, you know, particularly if you live, if you sleep with a snore, you can sort of blame your partner for up to, you know, 50% of your sleep disruptions oh, is yeah. caused by the other person. Yeah. So there's, you know, definitely in some cases, um, you know, there might be a reason that your, your, your partner is having a big impact on your sleep. Um, but there's a lot to be said of what we get out of sleeping together. Mm. And a lot of my work is simply about trying to explore this topic in um, a really sort of open and um, objective way. Okay, yeah, without not bringing judgment in the bias of, yeah. <laughs> of, of that there's one, you know, that there's one way we should or shouldn't be doing um, because we frankly don't know. And what we do know is that sleep is one of the most intimate <laughs> behaviors that people can engage in together. It's also critically important, sleep right. is, for every aspect of our functioning, including our relationship functioning. Yeah. So rather than focusing on some I, I predetermined idea of what couples should or shouldn't do, uh, what we really need to know is kind of what are the potential impacts of, uh, of, of bed sharing and what are yeah. the possible things that could interfere with couples sleeping well together. And, you know, if... For I, if either partner isn't sleeping well together, then why is that? And mm -hmm. what are some strategies to overcome that, mm -hmm. um, including having conversations about sleeping apart, if that works for a given couple, yeah. but kind of removing the judgment around, you know, this is what my parents did, or this is what my friends are doing, right. this is what my neighbors are doing, and that's therefore what we should be doing. I mean, sleep is, you know, occupies a major part of our you know, coupled existence, about third, one third of our time together. Yeah, as a it's couple. incredible when you think about it in those terms, right? Like just what, the sheer amount of your life that yeah, you spend in bed, in bed right? With your and partner. to your point, right? The sheer, like the amount of time within your own relationship that is spent with your partner is in bed. Yeah. It's like the largest concentrated right. period of time that you potentially spend with your partner. Yeah. So we have to be more mindful about it and have a conversation about, you know, what's working, what's not working um, in, you know, in the context of our own couple, not yeah. what, you know, the people down the street are doing or what, you know, you hear not about what people doing. the during. Van Dykes are doing down the street exactly. with their separate beds. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it really, you know, that's their choice. This has got to be your choice, yeah. but with the idea that sleep matters so much for the quality of your relationship because when you're not sleeping well, you know, mm. you're, uh, you know, not as good a communicator. You have a hard time um, empathizing with your partner. Yeah. Um, you lose your sense of humor. Like all these things that are really important for being a good partner go out the window when you're not well slept. So 
we've got to, you know, why isn't it that we have, you know, talk about like our sleeping habits yeah. in the context of, you know, premarital therapy, you know, we would never right. do this, but like we really should It's a third of our coupled existence. It's so funny. And, and we were catching up a little bit before we started recording, you know, that was kind of, um, wanting the drive, one of the driving factors behind me getting interested in, in doing this podcast. Right. So, you know, now I have three kids. Um, but you know, when I operated by myself as a bachelor, even when, you know, my wife and I were just dating, you know, like I could stay out all night drinking and I would have enough energy left to like get through work and be productive enough that like I kept my job and (laughs) you know what I mean? And then like maintain my relationship with her. But like, as all these responsibilities, kind of started to get piled on and like, they're, they're totally amazing. But like, I'd be lying if I said they didn't add stress and worry and, you know, responsibility. Um, I started to realize that like there wasn't, there no longer was enough energy to get me through the entire day. And where I started to fall short was in the areas when I took a step back, like really mattered to me. You know, if I had a poor night's sleep, um, I, I still might go to the gym and I, okay, I would yes. check that box and then I would get through work and I would have enough and I would, you know, pumped up on caffeine. I'd be able to get all my stuff done and still do really well there in that arena. But by the time I get home, I was spent. Yeah. And you know, with, with two kids, right? Yeah. That's like round two. They're like dad's home, exactly. mom's home, you know, yeah. like that's what they've been waiting for all day. And like, they need your energy because they want to spend time with you. And so I became really frustrated with myself in that I didn't feel like I had the energy left to kind of put my best foot forward there, Yeah, you know? And then on top of that, right, this whole idea of maintaining a relationship, you know, for, forget just having enough energy and, and still being like funny and empathetic, like right. just even like the energy to like stay awake to have a conversation, right? <laughs> right? And I was like, oh man, something is completely out of balance here. Um, I really need to start paying attention to like what I'm doing and kind of, I, I'm always thinking about it in terms, I, I keep calling it my energy, but like not in this sort of like woo woo foo foo way, but, no, but literally, like, literally <laughs> like how I'm feeling, like to have enough energy to get through the day. Well, I know uh, it's true. I mean, like sometimes, you know, when we're sleep deprived, we can push through the, you know, you're, you're unlikely to like, you know, take out your irritable, grumpy ass, yep. you know, sleep deprived mood on your boss. Yeah, oh, um, exactly. Or, but you know, Unfortunately, it's our families that bear the brunt of, yeah, of the terrible? consequences of sleep loss. And you know, and, and by the time we get home, we sort of push through, we push through. Yep. Um, you might be able to maintain that, you know, in your sort of external outward facing face. Right. But then you get home, the people who love you the most, the ones that you count on and that they count on you, that's when, you know, again, you're spent. And yeah. so that's where the sacrifice, you know, really starts to literally hit home. And I, you know, I hear this, you know, often that it's yeah. it, it's when, you know, the sacrificing sleep really, you know, people are able to, you know, push through in productive lives, but what's taking the hit is their family lives. Right. Well, and, and so I, I can't remember if you even said it today or in, in one of your um, Ted talks that I was just watching, but you know, you, you said something to the effect of sleep should kind of be like the first means of, you know, therapy, <laughs> right? Basically, like if there's problems at home or if there's problems at work or problems at school, like sleep might be the best place to start. And, you know, the way that I found out about you was you're, you're coming in, into our school district. And I think they're trying to do some progressive things with sleep in terms of, um, and I'll, I'll let you speak to it because yeah. I'm just going to stumble through it. But as I understand it, right, recognizing that, 
you know, physiologically at, at different points in an individual's life, they have different sleep needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and traditionally we haven't done a good job of catering to that. And, and so with that, I know you're doing a lot of work around like high schoolers. Yes. Um, w- would you talk a little bit about, you know, what you're trying to encourage in the edu- educational arena um, in terms of better understanding the sleep needs of a high schooler and kind of what what is taking place that uh, it's such a grave concern that like we need to start taking action? Sure. Yeah. So I'm um, you know, here uh, speaking um, to the local high schools about um, healthy school start times. Yeah. Um, and I do so around the country and I have a TED talk um, on the topic. Uh, we know that adolescents are um, a very high risk population for uh, being sleep deprived. Yeah. In fact, one only about one out of 10 um, adolescents regularly gets the roughly nine hours of sleep that they're developing brains and bodies and need to function optimally. So, you know, um, you know, across the lifespan, our our the our specific uh, sleep duration needs do change. Yeah. They, you know, sort of in our younger years, our children and uh, infants need even more sleep. Mm-hmm. Adolescents are not just little adults; they still have developing, rapidly developing brains, um, so they need more sleep than adults. Again, and I feel like we f- forget that. We forget that we treat them as little adults, and we then yep. blame them for their you know bad behaviors that we you know you know it's irritability, grumpiness, poor judgment, all of which actually could be related to sleep deprivation. So this is a chronically sleep deprivation deprived society. And there are certainly lots of reasons why they're sleep deprived. I never ascribe to the idea that there's a single magic bullet that's like the causal factor. But we do know that during adolescence or during the transition, um, when when adolescents um, reach puberty, there is a unique um, change in their sleep-wake cycles such that they're shifted about two hours later than what we see hmm. in adults or younger children. Yeah. Um, and this is driven uh, primarily by a delay in the release of the hormone melatonin, okay. which is the hormone of darkness. That signals to the brain that it's time for sleep or that you should get sleepy. Yeah. Teenagers' bodies wait to start pumping out melatonin until about two hours later than adults or younger children. Hmm. So biologically, they are programmed to stay awake later and sleep in later. But unfortunately, right at the time that their bodies are showing this biological shift, something that which is not at all under their control, right. we have school start times starting earlier and earlier. Uh, the average school start time in the U.S. is about 8.03 a.m. Uh, here in this district, it's, I think, 7.30 or 7.33 a.m. So I remember... Yeah, it might've changed my junior and senior year, but we were at a high school, a big public high school, uh, North Seattle, Arlington, Washington, and it was overcrowded. So we went on this, um, kind of crazy, like block schedule. Okay. And I remember as a freshman and sophomore, I, I think I had to show up at 7am Oh my gosh! because we had to get a whole period in before like the next set of students came in. Cause we had to like, and so, but I just remember like, I mean, I, I must've been getting up at before six easily to be able to get to school and then, you know, going to football practice, basketball, and then on top of like trying to stay awake in like seventh grade out, you know, whatever that was algebra, like it was brutal. Brutal. And so there's this direct conflict between the policy, which is in this case, this time school starts um, and adolescence biology. They're in direct conflict. Waking a teenager like uh, up at 6 a.m. is the biological equivalent of waking an adult up at 4 a.m. Yeah. You know, it's like we're literally turning our teenagers into shift workers. Right. And we know there are consequences. 
responses to that. Hmm. Um, so yeah, so I'm speaking about um, the importance of shifting uh, school start times to a healthy time. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and virtually every other medical organization that right. has um, commented on this all recommend that middle and high school should start no earlier than 8.30 a.m. And I actually just participated as an advisory board member on the um, Pennsylvania Joint State Government Commission, which studied oh. school start times. Great. And they too came to the conclusion that um, uh, schools across the state of Pennsylvania um, should at least consider the science and yeah. consider uh, uh, moving start times to a more uh, healthy option uh, to accommodate the needs of adolescents. Yeah, are you finding that these school districts are receptive um, yes, generally. Uh, I mean, I think that... I feel like anyone who has kids is probably maybe a little more likely to empathize. You would think. I mean, but but still, there, you know, there's definitely, you know, kind of my job is to sort of educate mm. the community on the science behind it. Because there's still, you know, sort of like we were talking before, there's still right. this cultural attitude of like, well, let's toughen them up. You know, you yeah. know, I, you know, had to, you know, walk through the snow for miles and started the day <laughs> at 7 a.m. and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> to which I always say, like, I used to also ride in like a milk crate in my parents' car. Right, exactly. Before there were seatbelts. And by the way, we wouldn't suggest that, you know, now that there's actually science to show that seatbelts save lives, we wouldn't say that's a good idea just right. because we survived. Similarly, you know, even if we survived with early start times, many of us did not because actually start times have actually gotten earlier and earlier. Oh, okay. um, but so we actually still have this idea that, you know, by supporting the sleep needs of our teenagers. Yeah when their brains are rapidly developing, that somehow we're coddling them. Yeah. Um, and again, I think this is still part of the societal idea that, you know, sleep is for the weak. And so you toughen people up. I think that, yeah, I think that's what, I think you just them. summed it up. <laughs> this, this, it's this idea that sleep is for the weak. Yeah. So, so we really need to, edu so there is definitely, I mean, uh, an opportunity uh, to sort of educate communities. That's what I, that's what I do. And that's why I'm uh, speaking broadly about this, because I think, you know, changing start times is not an easy thing. School mm -hmm. start times do really set the rhythm of entire communities. So there is a ripple down effect. For sure, right. So there are logistics, absolutely, that have to be handled. And yeah. it's not easy, but you first have to understand why we're undertaking this. Right. Why it's, when the stakes are this high, mm -hmm. that truly the health, the well-being, the academic performance, the future productivity, and indeed our economy yeah. is dependent on supporting the developing brains and bodies and and minds um, of our teenagers. Right. Um, and it's a very vulnerable period. A lot yeah. can go wrong during the teenage years. So, you know, rather than coddling them, we are really supporting their healthy development. So that's really what I'm here to do is to really educate on the science of why adolescents struggle so much to get enough sleep. Mm -hmm. The problem with early school start times is that it's not merely a matter of parenting yeah. or a matter of, you know, teenagers just being lazy, know, lazy. Yeah. Um, and that there's something that we can do about it. Yeah. I, I love that approach. And it's, you know, you, it's easy to forget that, yeah, their, their brains are developing mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, I think about this for a lot of different reasons. You know, like I, I played football through college, you know, and there's all sorts of research about CTE, um, which, you know, is fantastic that research is coming out and thinking about like, well, what is the, the damage you're inflicting while your brains are still developing? Um, making that leap to like, well, let's just think about like how disruptive it is to pull a kid out of the necessary sleep to yes. like continue, you know, like for that brain development to flourish. Yeah. Uh, so I'm really glad to hear um, that folks like yourself are, you know, increase in awareness and um, hopefully our school district's receptive. Well, I they've been great so far awesome. and it's great that they're just even having this dialogue and yeah. I hope the community will, 
you know, be able to, you know, come out and express concerns because it's one thing to express concerns, but yeah. then allow the opportunity to be a part of the problem solving process. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it may not be the, uh, you know, convenient for sure. everyone. You might like your schedule currently. Right. And yeah, parents got to get to work. They yep. might be in a routine yep. in, in which they get their kids out the door at a certain time. That yep. works for them. So totally change, get it. change is hard. I get that. Yep. But don't take this lightly. We're not taking this lightly. The reason right. schools would ever consider this is because the stakes are so high. Yeah. To do nothing is to do harm. Yeah. Um, and that is what's currently happening when teenagers are deprived of the sleep they need. Okay. So for you, because I know we need to uh, wrap this up. You have a busy day ahead of you still. Uh, so thank you for for joining. I really appreciate it. Um, let me just ask you, it's completely open-ended. Like, what are you kind of interested in right now with regards to sleep? Like, is there any new frontier out there that you're excited to begin researching? I'm excited about a, a number of things. I'm doing uh, uh, a number of things, both um, in looking at some of the broader um, health consequences of sleep loss. I'm now okay. studying um, how uh, sleep loss contributes to cognitive aging and dementia risk. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, um, yeah, so sleep I is- I feel like we could probably, I'm sure yeah. we could have a whole nother conversation, but <laughs> okay. I'll just say it's really important. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> bullet points. Um, and, uh, and I'm interested, so we're some, pursuing some research in that area to understand how sleep contributes um, to healthy or unhealthy cognitive aging and risk for dementia. Mm. I'm also really interested in looking at um, uh, caregivers and partners of uh, people who have either dementia or mild cognitive impairment and mm. um, the impact on their sleep and their health risk. Um, yeah. and, and then also sort of in the couple's angle, I'm also now interested in uh, sort of bridging my research to look at kind of now that we know that sleep and relationship quality are so interconnected and yeah. the sleep of partners is so interdependent. Well, how can we use that knowledge to actually develop new and innovative treatments for couples um, to um, help each other sleep better and actually engage the partner, um, either both in the treatment of sleep disorders, yeah. as well as sort of more on the continuum of sleep health? That, you know, how can we even use technology among partners uh, to help um, partners become better supporters of mm. um, positive sleep um, kind of in the couple dyad? Yeah. Oh man, that sounds awesome. Well, we'll have to have you back at some point. I, I, would, I would love to hear about both of those. Um, the, you know, my, my grandmother who passed away a few years ago now, um, I don't know if she was specifically diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but I remember it was some form of dementia and you know, it's hard, yeah. right? That's really yeah. hard to see. And especially a loved one, you don't want to see someone go through that. It's hard for everyone involved. And so, you know, I, I've seen some of this kind of preliminary research come out that indicates that it could be really co closely correlated to lack of sleep and mm -hmm. like the inability for the brain to, you know, kind of like do all its processing and flushing yeah. out the brain. And um, so, you know, it kind of makes me think like, gosh, like had maybe, you know, had we just known more, could it have been something that had been prevented? So I'm, I'm very interested and glad to hear there's people like you working on that. Um, so for people who uh, would either, you know, like to learn more about you or get in touch with you or hear what you're working on, like what, what's, where's the best place for people to find you? Probably best place to find me is um, um, through uh, the RAND Corporation, uh, okay. um, the RAND website. You can just uh, Google my name, Wendy Troxel. Perfect. Also um, at uh, Wendy Troxel is my Twitter uh, handle. And, awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. You better go ask mommy, daddy. <laughs> All righty. And it is now that time where we run it by Minovia.
<laughs> Good evening, Sonia. Good evening, <laughs> Novio. Oh boy, lots of Spanish. <laughs> Bilingual podcast. So I thought this podcast was awesome. Yeah, I think this one was my favorite so far. Yeah, I was I was so fired up about it for so many reasons. One, we got to actually do it in person. Yeah, that was cool. Which was great. It just you know it, it's it's always. Um, so much more enjoyable, like when you can actually like be in the room with the person talking. No video though. No you, video. You, you kind of creeped her out. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to work on the, the approach there. We need like some sort of production buffer. Kenny was like, do you mind if I tape you? Yeah, I know. Well, that, 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 would, throw the, that, would, that would throw the best of people off. Um, but we did get awesome audio. She was great. Yeah. And I felt like there's a lot of stuff in there that was really interesting, but there was also a lot of like things that are, um, hopefully really easy to implement. You yeah, know what I mean? I thought so too. So, well, actually I'll ask you, what did you think <laughs> of the podcast? I loved her. I thought that she had some really easy things that she said that we could easily do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we dive right into it? So fun fact, third of our lives is spent in bed. That's not new to people. However, should you and I be married for 75 years, that means that we will have spent 25 of those years sleeping. Mm. Wrap your mind around that. Wow, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the first things she said that I thought was really important is you need to build a relaxing routine before bed right? Like we're creatures of habit. And, um, I thought that her take that from a like evolutionary standpoint, right? We've kind of like evolved to always be on high alert, mm -hmm. especially when sleeping, because like that is when we're most susceptible, quite frankly, to being eaten. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, we need to put ourselves in this routine to kind of calm ourselves down and like let our brain and body know like, Hey, we're safe. We're secure. You know, it's okay to doze off. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've gotten better at doing a routine. We were good at it before Kant, our baby, our newest baby, yeah. whose name shall not be said, <laughs> was born. Wow, slip up. You yeah. had a face routine, our mouth routine. You even got a nice gusha massage oh. every night. I'm going to pull you from CBD the podcast <laughs> if you start. Like, people are going to be like, well, what? Can you make me massage his face when no. I was nine months pregnant? That's not exactly. Every night. That's not entirely how it worked. <laughs> but yes, we did have a nice routine. Um, my guilty pleasure, though, is capping it off with The Office. Yeah. Which is a TV in the room, which is one of her do nots which I never liked before we started dating. I oh. never had the TV on before, but I never had a TV in my room. I never wanted one. Oh. You so, know that. So this whole time <laughs> I've just been holding you hostage, watching The Office Against Your Will before bed. You seem to enjoy it though. <laughs> I do. For someone who doesn't want it there. Um, but no, we can cut it out. To be fair, I have been reading books before bed. And I'm watching The Office. And you're watching The Office, yes. Yeah. And I'm reading the riveting tale of Ulysses S. Grant. Yep. That's what you're doing. <laughs> it's very it's a very big and impressive book. Yes. Um, so that's one that's an easy one. Get rid of the phones. She recommends an hour before. Um, I do a pretty good job of that, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, others on this I podcast. <laughs> I don't do that. <laughs> not so much. 
So my me, nighttime routine is much different than yours, though. My night is much different than yours because I'm well, waking with, up with the baby. With the baby. And being but on you, the phone while I'm feeding the baby helps me stay awake. Yeah, but okay. Yes. Fair. You had to pull the baby card. Can we say, though, that even prior to this baby, you may have some phone habits <laughs> that could use potential adjustment? <gasps> Sure. If we're just listening to the science. Yeah. If we're, yeah. Okay. All right. Agree. So that was the big one. Get the phone out of the room an hour before bed. Um, that, that makes sense, right? I think everyone now has heard about like the effect blue light can cause on. But we've uh, got our fancy blue light brain. glasses that we, we do like to wear. From Warby Parker, <laughs> not a sponsor of the show, but uh, we do. You'll love your glasses. So yeah, we use those. I actually feel like they help. I I actually do too. Like I don't I don't want to keep my contacts in when we're watching TV anymore. Yeah. I always put my glasses on. But why is that? Because you feel like the blue light blocking is working. I think because our brains are so powerful that, like she said, we have powerful brains. Yeah. Especially you. <laughs> that I think <laughs> so, that so it's helping said? me go to sleep. Well, no, I say that it, you, Kenny, can sometimes trick himself into either being sick or (laughs) wow the gloves have officially come off powerful brain i don't know if we're going to make it through the end of this segment it's the opposite of the placebo effect i will say though i don't care if it's a placebo effect if it works it works yeah yeah i don't don't care give me sugar pills all day yeah i don't mind i'd yeah i'd prefer it yeah less harmful in the liver (laughs) so okay Blue light blocking glasses. That's an us tip, not a her tip. <laughs> um, something else that I thought was interesting is if you are having trouble sleeping, like if, if you're someone who really has insomnia, like of course, see a doctor. <laughs> uh, but she does not recommend taking pills, which I think we probably could have assumed, right? Right. Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of people are coming to the realization that Americans are over-medicated. But what she recommends... Um, is actually trying to stay awake for longer until your body naturally wants to go to sleep. Yeah. Which makes sense when you hear it, Mm -hmm. but that's not what I, I guess what I would have intuitively thought they might instruct you to do. Yeah. Also, um, something you already did was when you wake up and you get anxious and can't fall back to sleep, Mm -hmm. you get out of bed. I do. And you usually go downstairs (laughs) to the kitchen and make a mess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well uh, yes I do. Uh, I do like my midnight bowl of granola and you know quite frankly sometimes I just like a little me time so in the middle of the night I sneak out I watch on TV no one's hurt by that uh, but yeah I do that and I actually got that from one of the books that I read on sleep yeah um, that might have been like Nick Littlehale's book I think it's actually just called sleep Anyway, Mm -hmm. that actually does work for me. Um, But I usually go down and watch TV. I think next time I'll try and read a book. Yeah. And see if that helps me fall asleep a little bit faster. You were just saying how how your Ulysses S. Grant book makes you want to go right to sleep. It does. It is so good (laughs) that it puts me right to sleep. Um, The other thing is she still recommends like thinking about it in, in terms of like the amount of hours that you need. Mm-hmm. Right. So you and I've kind of been all jazzed up on sleep cycles. 
Yeah. Which I think she she didn't say that was bad. I think she might have thought I was saying that like I really like track it with like a sleep tracker. Yeah, I think that's what she was thinking too. Yeah. Because then she started talking about in-home devices and we don't even have one of those right. watches or whatever. And I wasn't even polite enough to just correct her on the spot. You were confused. I just, yeah, I was just trying to keep up. She's so smart. Um, yeah. So, okay. So yeah, seven, seven and about seven to eight hours. Right. But I think that's kind of what we're doing. Like we shoot at least to get eight, hoping that we can get in those five cycles. I mean, we were going to bed at eight 30 for most of the last half of last year. Yeah. Well, eight 30. Well, we were falling asleep by like nine 30, 10. Oh uh, yeah. I was asleep much earlier. Yeah. You were asleep earlier. That's, that's true. But I was also waking up every hour or so to go pee. <laughs> that's true. Oh, do you hear that tiny violin? <laughs> Is there a tiny violin in the room? It must just be in my headphones. Um, so the other thing is people who like to like talk about how little sleep they get, they like to wear it like a badge of honor. There is that like small percentage of the population who actually only needs like somewhere around four hours of sleep, right? I think what did she call them? She called them short sleepers. Uh, she said that there's actually only 2% of the population that fall within that category. So if you're listening to this and you think you're a short sleeper, you're probably not. There's a 98% chance that you are a liar. <laughs> so odds are you need the seven did and you, a half. Did you write that joke down so that you could say it? Yeah. I've, been th I've had that one in the holster from <gasps> the moment she said it. Is it written out like that? <laughs> no, it's not. But I, there's, there's, there's shorthand. Um, the other thing too is like consistency over time. And I feel like we do pretty well about this with this now. Yeah. Having kids has definitely helped us. Yeah. Because no one wants to hang out with us in the evening. We don't get invited to anything. Yeah. And even if we do, we usually decline because we can't stay up past 10. Yeah. <laughs> so. And our parent friends yeah. are in the same boat. Yes. Yeah. They're on top of it. We're just trying to keep up with them. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I wanted to get your take on, a little controversial perhaps. Mm -hmm. the idea that um, it is okay for couples to, to have separate beds, separate beds. How did I know you were going to say that? Well, I if anyone would want a separate bed in our relationship, it should be me. Oh, hot take. Please continue. Tell me why. <laughs> I don't ever snore. You sometimes snore. Okay. Usually no. I wasn't aware of this. Am I a bad snore? No, only sometimes. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, and this was not brought up on the podcast, but this is uh, a Ken pro tip. Oh God, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, you know where this is going. I <laughs> started sleeping with max strength breathe right strips <laughs> yes, because I have a deviated septum because um, I've broken my nose on a number of occasions and uh, I just, yeah, I don't breathe well through it, especially in the winter. I get a little congested. <laughs> yeah, the breathe right strip keeps that wide open. <laughs> we'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, so that's a pro tip. But yes, okay. The idea of couples sleeping completely separate. Yeah, I don't like that. No dice. Yeah, I don't like that. Did you get my Dick Van Dyke reference? Yeah, with the separate beds. Yeah. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was good. Okay. <laughs> I'm, she... I'm doing this entire podcast for you. Okay. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true because if you were, one, you would have answered or asked my mom's question no. about menopause. <laughs> and two, probably more importantly, you would have asked how to make cannon or our babies. Wow. How to make the baby. Well, I mean, 
Okay. It, one, it's it's not. There's a lot of questions that I would love to ask her. We're, we're gonna have to have her back on. Yeah. Just pick her brain. I, I feel like I could have kept asking her questions for hours. You know yeah. what I mean? Like she's doing so much interesting stuff with the couples, with the military, and just sleep in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, I'm sorry, menopause was on the list. We will have to follow up on yeah, that. Yeah, my one. mom's really upset at you. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, I she doesn't ask for much, Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, I'll get her. I'll get her on the next one. Um, okay, but that's that's kind of all the takeaways I had. So I think you know the big thing was get a routine, get the phone out of the room, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're trying to have sleep, don't resort to melatonin, Benadryl if you don't have to. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe try this idea of extending your wakefulness. Mm-hmm. See if that works for you. Um, I think that yeah, I think that's everything. Do you have anything? Um, no, I think we covered it all. That feels like a good, I know I got to work on, I got to make these more concise. Yeah. Maybe the plan is to boil it down to like three takeaways. Yeah. Cause people are like, did I just listen to the podcast over again? Like what is the section? <laughs> and, the, and them kind of fight with each yeah, other. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like the same conversation, just a little more chippy. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, we'll work on it. This thing's, this thing's a work in progress. It's only our third time. Come on. We're getting better people. Um, all right. Well, hey, if you haven't turned off the show yet, thank you for listening. Uh, we've got a really great show next week. And uh, I'm going to edit in who that is because I'm forgetting right now. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. I love you. <laughs> <laughs>